Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Hey, look at the person next to you and say, I'm so glad that you are here today. All right, with some enthusiasm, now I want you to look at the person you ignored, and I want you to say the same thing. Yeah, gotcha. Hey, I, I am really, really excited that you're here, and I am happy to be in God's house. Anybody else happy to be in God's house? Anyone? There's a couple of us. Uh, it's okay. We'll get there together, I promise. Hey, we're in uh, week five of our series. We're finishing up a series that's called Switch, and what we've been looking at is the way that Jesus engaged with difficult people, and the way that he engaged with socially awkward people, the way that he engaged with people that otherwise would have been marginalized in their culture. And what we've noticed is this big switch that Jesus takes the person who was seemingly invisible because of their ailment or just their condition or maybe just who they are, and yet he takes them from being invisible to making them visible before him. And that's what we're going to see again today. And I'm really excited about today's message because today's message is so simple that I remember teaching through this passage actually when I was a kid's pastor, and it was so simple for them. And if you don't get today's message, if you don't get it, you're probably asleep, all right? So I want you to nudge the person next to you and say, don't sleep, don't sleep, don't sleep. Look at them. Nudge them. A little harder. They're going to sleep a little harder. All right. So here's the thing. We are all in this thing together. I want to begin today by, by just kind of mentioning one thing, you're going to hear about this later, but you know we're talking about taking uh, people who are invisible and making them visible. One of the ways that we do this here at Calvary is by partnering with other ministries outside of the church. And one ministry that we're partnered with and have been for years is, a mission, or is, is Missions for Taylorville. Now, if you're interested, you're going to hear some stuff about this later. They specialize in taking people who, who have needs, and they go through and they vet the process to see these people who are... Re- invisible need some help and care and they vet these people out and then they present opportunity for people like us to serve and to care for so you're going to hear about that more at the end of the service but if that even right now kind of piques your interest at the end of the service go to the guest services wall there's some information there for you to follow up to help make some other people who are invisible to make them make them visible by us again it's a partner ministry it's Missions for Taylorville is something we need to get behind. And here's the thing that I know, especially about guys, especially about guys. It's probably true of women, too. But guys, a lot of guys, they want to know, like, I just want to be involved in something, but I don't know what to plug into because I don't know how to use my skill set. Missions for Taylorville is a great way for you to plug in and use your skill set to help other people, some people who I believe would be invisible otherwise. So there is something you're going to hear about, again, later on. And uh, Kevin is going to give an announcement about that. But if you're interested, the guest services wall at the back of the room. I want to begin today with telling you a story about somebody who I connected with about a year and a half ago by the name of Scott. Scott's an interesting guy. He was a Marine veteran. Any Marine veterans in the house? Anyone? 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 There you go. Got a couple. Got a. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Marines are amazing. I, I, I was in the Navy, so we have this ongoing thing. Yeah, we can give it up for our Marine veterans and the rest of our veterans as well. 
I, I am I'm a sailor, so I, it's one of the things that I have pleasure in doing is giving Marines a hard time, and they reciprocate that by giving me a hard time. So that's just a little inside joke between sailors and Marines. So here's the thing. Uh, Scott was somebody I connected with. He was a, a Marine veteran, and he was also a law enforcement officer. And I'd heard about his story. I'd heard about his story not because of all that had happened through him, but also what he did on the other side of what happened to him. So what happened to him? You're asking the question in your mind right now. Scott went in for a routine surgery a few years ago. Just, again, routine, in and out, in and out, in and out. Surgeons do this stuff all the time, the same type of of procedure, no big deal. Problem is, when Scott woke up from the surgery, he was paralyzed. He was paralyzed in, in, in his leg, and one of his legs was just absolutely paralyzed. He was devastated, of course. It's one of those things where you read the... You, know, you're, you don't read the fine print before a surgery, and they, they give you the piece of paper when you're getting ready to have a surgery, and you sign this just in case there's anything that happens in the middle of the surgery. Well, it was one of those types of things, a rare uh, situation with Scott, and uh, the doctors were dumbfounded. They, they don't know why it happened, don't know how it happened, but he's paralyzed on one side. The doctors told him at the Mayo Clinic, they said that you will never walk again. I love how God gets the final word, though, when doctors say things. Amen? And so the doctor said, you'll never walk again. I believe it was the next day that Scott started to have a little tingling in his leg. And, of course, by then, there's already people praying for him. He's devastated. He's a person of faith. His wife is a person of faith. They're praying that that he would walk again, that he wouldn't indeed be paralyzed. But his leg starts to have a little bit of feeling. He then calls in the doctor and the nurses and the physical therapist. And what the doctor said would never happen, that he would never walk again. He actually began walking in the, in, over the next couple of days. And then the, the doctors at Mayo said this was a miracle. And again, I love how God has the final word. Even when sometimes we think, we, we think rather, things are at the end. It's like there's no hope, there's nothing. And yet we, we serve and we worship a God that we go to who honors our prayers. And sometimes he heals us in the way that, that we ask that healing would come about. Sometimes he doesn't give us healing in that way. Sometimes it's spiritual healing rather than physical healing. We're going to see both of these things happen here in this passage. But the reason why I share with you Scott's story is, A, it's a story of healing. And yes, even with the healing, he defied what the doctors had said. And the doctors at Mayo, one of the the best hospital systems in the world, at Mayo, they scratched their head and said it was a miracle. It still took some physical therapy for him to to, to be able to walk. And he walks with a brace, but he can function and he can do all this. And now he makes it his life mission to help other people who are in a similar situation that he was in. So compelling, so compelling to me. We're going to see in the passage today in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see four men who are so inspired and so, so determined to help bring their friend to Jesus, knowing that it's only Jesus who can offer the healing that the friend needs. Uh, there's something that's really interesting, too, about the gospel of Mark that's it's peculiar to the gospel of Mark and not the rest of them. So as you flip into Mark chapter 2, we jump into verse 1, I'll, I'll just give you this, this little nugget. Mark was someone who had not seen um, the, the events of Jesus' ministry firsthand. Instead, he was a close companion of Peter. 
So everything that he wrote down was from Peter's eyewitness testimony. And doesn't get anyone really, no one was as close to Jesus as Peter. If you look in the storyline of all the Gospels, you see that Peter was right next to Jesus. So now the Holy Spirit inspires Mark to write this Gospel through Peter's firsthand testimony. I don't know why, that's kind of a mystery. Like, why didn't Peter write it? He wrote some other things, but why didn't he write this? And yet, John Mark writes this, and he writes it in a specific way. Uh, different than the rest of them. It's the shortest gospel, and yet it's so powerful in the way that he writes. And we're going to see some of that right here in Mark chapter 2. Here's what it says in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat to the paralyzed man or that the paralyzed man was lying on. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone?" Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to a paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. If we're to trace back the, the storyline and some, some significant things about this particular passage, we see that these events happen in Capernaum. This was really the hub of Jesus' ministry. This is actually where Jesus began his ministry. This is where Jesus called his first disciples. And this is a place where Jesus commonly healed those who were sick or lame. Or even, in this case, someone who's paralyzed. So, this is a place Jesus resided there. He spent so much time there. The beginning of his ministry. Now, the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 2, you see that uh, it just says, a few days later in the storyline of Mark, when, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. This is one of the things particular to uh, the gospel of Mark. Mark loved to show how the crowds interrupted Jesus' ministry. He loved this. He loved to show how the crowds impacted Jesus' ministry. We see this right here at the beginning of the passage. It says this in verse 2. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. We'll stop here for just a moment. In, in the ancient Palestinian culture, an open door meant an open invitation for anyone to walk in. It's still common in a lot of third world countries today. So if your door was open, that was, that was an open invitation for anyone in the community. They could just walk into your house. That'd be an interesting thing for you to try out in your neighborhood, wouldn't it? <laughs> like at night and stuff, you know, just, hey, I just want you to know you're always welcome here. Maybe just like what is it, Motel 6 will leave the light on for you? I don't know how that works. Maybe that's what you need to do. Uh, but, but that's one of the things that was very common in their culture. If the door was open, that meant that you could go in. 
And now we, we see that there's so many people inside there. Jesus is giving this teaching. So many people have filled this place. It's overflowing. There's people out on the porch. There's people out on the lawn. There's, there's no way they can fit more people in there. This was something that Jesus would surround himself with the crowd no matter where he went. The most simple way of understanding this passage is the first fill in the blank that you have on your sermon notes. It's this. We make invisible people visible when we bring them to Jesus. We make invisible people visible when we bring them to Jesus. You see, these friends are on a mission. You may think to yourself, well, okay, they're, they're on a mission, but how easy or difficult would it be for them to actually break through the roof? Again, the way that they would live, they use the top. Their, their homes weren't very big, so they use the roof of their homes for a bunch of different things. Probably not sunbathing, but, you know, we probably would in our culture. But So that you could get onto their roof because a lot of their homes just had a ladder on the side of the roof. So they would use the top of their roof. It wouldn't be that hard for them to get through the roof. But I want you to know these men are on a mission. And we know because we just read the scripture that it turned out really well. I want to share with you just a short video and let you know how it actually could have turned out. Uh, maybe an alternate ending to this storyline, what was here. So let's air this video and let's see how it could have turned out. There you go. I'm not really sure why, but I feel really inspired to give stretcher rides right now. Uh, I will need you to sign the waiver, though, because uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out so much. But uh, aren't you glad that our hospital system isn't like that? Good grief. That'd be bad news. Um, and it's also the reason why I don't play soccer, uh, just so you know. So, of course, we know that these men were on a mission. 
And and the, the mission was for a miracle. The men were so determined that they wanted to take, that they needed Uh, They knew that they needed to get their friend to Jesus, so they were willing to do a lot to to make that happen. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, from just what we read just a couple moments ago, they make a a hole in someone's roof just to lower this man down in the middle of Jesus giving this, this teaching. Make no mistake, it is indeed a miracle that they're after. You may ask, well, what is a miracle? There was a conversation that was had in a rural church and the pastor got up and he asked the, he asked the congregation, he said, what is a miracle? And, and there was a couple of the staff people trying to impress the, the pastor. And, the, and they gave you know, some just great like, theological explanation as to what a, a miracle is. And, and then a deacon stood up and, and he just gave a very, very practical way of explaining what a miracle is. And then there's this little girl who just kind of sheepishly raised her hand. And then they called on her. And they said, well, honey, what, what, what's your answer? And she said, a miracle is something that God can do that we can't do. This is what these men knew. This was something that only God could do. The healing that only God could provide. So they were willing to, they were willing to risk a lot to make this happen. What we see very clearly in this passage is the miracle is more important than the mess. The miracle is more important than the mess. It says in verse 2, So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Picture, if you will, Jesus is in the middle of a, of a message. Maybe he has a five-point just an amazing message that he's delivering. He's in point three. The room is full. The air is stale. The standing room only. There's just people everywhere. You've got the teachers of the law right here. And they're just like, in the Bible, they're just like in the New Testament, they're perpetually in a bad mood, it seems like. It's like they're there. They're kind of glaring at him. He's in the middle of this message, probably beautifully illustrated, a way that everybody who, who could have the spiritual eyes to see and understand, they're able, they're soaking it in. It's amazing. And then all of a sudden they start hearing some on the roof. And then they fight for, for attention. They're like, okay, there's something going on, but who, who knows? There's just people everywhere. So then they're locked back into Jesus. And then after a while they start hearing, it sounds like part of the roof coming apart. And the, 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 uh, the roof system would be made of like tiles and grass and stuff. So it's like it's being pulled back. And, but yet they're, they're, they're like, okay, I, I'm, I want, I'm so distracted, but I'm locked into Jesus. Jesus, oh, you're, Jesus, I'm just really soaking this in. And then all of a sudden it's like the, the, a little, little dust starts falling in from the ceiling in the middle of the room, right? And now it's just falling in. It's like, are you kidding? What is the, these people have no idea what, what's going on. And then, and then they're again re-engaged with what Jesus is saying. And they're trying to be so good listeners and just trying to soak up every word. And then they can see sunlight. Sunlight in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And then not only, it's only sunlight for a second, but then these four gentlemen, they lower their friend right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. I think we can all agree that that would, be, that would be a mess. That would be a mess publicly, and that would also be just a mess, mess, would it not? One of the things that I tend to believe is this, that maybe the reason why we don't see miracles is because we're not willing to, to risk the mess. 
maybe one of the reasons why we don't actually see and possess the true power and just that we live in the spirit of God is because we're afraid of looking messy to someone else. We're afraid of looking too spiritual to someone else. We're afraid of actually praying bold prayers because if God does that, then we're going to be seen as those weird Jesus people. I just want you to know that I want to be known as one of those weird Jesus people. I want to be known as one of those weird Jesus people who believe that the God of miracles in the Old and New Testament is still the God of miracles today. So when somebody asks me, like a friend is asking me, and there's a, maybe some of you are connected with, with Don's story on, on Facebook, and somebody's, they're pleading with, with God, and they're asking others to plead with God and ask for a miracle. In this case, Don's struggling with cancer, and now they're asking for a bold miracle. I want to be the type of person who prays and believes by faith that God can and still and perhaps will do it. But I want you to do the same. But you have to risk looking messy. You can't, you can't be the, the shiny, happy Christian all the time. Sometimes you have to be willing to, to look a little messy to get around messy people to see God do amazing things. If you sit around with perfect, perfect people, like pharisaical people, you're probably not going to see the miracles of God as much as you would those who are desperate for it. These four men were desperate to get their friend to Jesus, to be in front of Jesus, because perhaps Jesus could give them a miracle to heal their friend, which we read indeed that that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is still in the miracle business, but we have to be willing to get involved in the mess. And to put aside what it is that maybe people would think of us, instead not to, to be worried about so much people-pleasing, but instead of just being people-pleasing, just being God-honoring. And praying and believing and pleading and urging and petitioning and interceding. All words for prayer. That's the type of people that God is calling us to. If you're in the family of God, that's the type of person He wants you to be. So you can see the miraculous. So that you can see the power of God in your life and in other people's lives. So that you can see your lost friends become new in Christ. This is what God wants for all of us. Not just for me, but for all of us. These friends were so determined. They were determined to get their friend to Jesus. But there's, there's an interesting little twist here. Because in their culture, someone who was, who was in his situation, who was paralyzed, they would have been viewed with suspicion. They wouldn't, wouldn't have necessarily been a social outcast, but they would have been viewed with suspicion because in that culture, they tied physical ailments to personal sin. So everyone would have, excuse me, people would have looked at, at this man and said, what must he have done to be in the condition he's in? Church, we do the same thing when we see somebody struggle with addiction. We can do this. I've seen people do this. We've seen anyone who has an ailment or, or any sort of, of, it looks like something that they've caused in themselves, we can so easily make that person invisible and view them with suspicion as a way to allow an escape for us to do anything to help them. And this is not right. 
But this happens all the time. This happens all the time when you see somebody who's difficult. You see somebody who just says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing. Or you see they, maybe they are struggling with some sort of addiction. Or they just have something that they've just been plagued with their whole life through. And we can be suspicious of that person. We can so easily put them in a category of other and saying, oh, you, you're just, you are in the place that you're in and it is your fault. And if you would just fix yourself, then everything would be well. That is so unbiblical. That is so unbiblical. It's unbiblical because... We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, not to just call them something else or not to view everyone with suspicion and certainly not to look for ways to disengage where areas where we're supposed to engage. Some uh, psychologists and scholars, they have this terminology that I'm borrowing and I'm making my definition, and they call it, this othering is about power structures that divide, dehumanize, and dismiss people that don't fit into our social and spiritual ideals. Of saying that's the other, that's another group. The thought being, and, and because of, of sin in the world, of saying, if I can just put them in a category out here, that means I can ignore them, I can make them invisible, I can pretend that they don't even exist, and I, so I don't have to get involved in their life. That's what othering is. It's about... It's about power structures. It's about if I, can, if I can put myself on a higher pedestal and I can, I can dismiss other people, I can divide, and I can ultimately what it is is dehumanizing and it's just dismissing people that don't fit into our social or spiritual ideals. These are the people who live differently than us, who look differently than us, or believe differently than us. These are the others. These are the others. What's so ironic and shocking about this is that we Gentiles, non-Jewish people, we were the others. Biblically, we were the others, and I'm going to help you to see this. In Romans 5, 8 through 11, it says this, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies, enemies, we will certainly be saved through this life, through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We were the others. Jesus made a way so that there would be no more others. Jesus made a way of tearing down the, the walls of hostility that not only that existed between Jew and Gentile, but also the wall of, of hostility that resided between us and God. Jesus made a way to do away with the others and the other mentality. I'll add some more scripture to this. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ. Those of us who have actually put our faith in Christ. That's who Paul's referencing here in Galatians 3. 
He says, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on of new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, or female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's actually no such thing as free males. I don't know if you knew that or not. Just male or female. But he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, what does this mean for us? What are the implications of this? Matthew 22, 37 through 39 says this. You must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, we were the others. Jesus Christ came to earth, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. He lived a sinless life all the years of his life. Takes on the the humiliation of our sin. Dies on a cross publicly. Buried in a tomb. Arose on the third day. The Spirit of God then released in Acts 2. All because Jesus didn't want us to be the others. And now Jesus wants us to help eliminate the others mentality around us. So we'll add some more to this. Because I have a hunch, some choose to keep invisible people invisible because it costs them time, energy, and money. But the question bears asking is this, but does Jesus do that? Does Jesus do that? See, some choose to keep invisible people invisible, and they stay not with the open door at home, but with the closed door at home, and they close off their lives, and they close off their relationships, and they keep people, they keep people uh, away from them. They're just close enough to be seen, but not close enough to be known. Did you catch that? There's a difference. Just close enough to be seen publicly, but not, but not close enough to be known personally, because it may cost them some time and energy and money. But I want you to know, love always costs time, it always costs energy, and it always costs money. It just does. If you love someone long enough, it will always cost you that. But I get it. There's, there's so much about this that, that it could be troubling. I mean, you see this, uh, this event that's happening, this miracle that's happening in Capernaum. The men, verse 3, it says, Some men came bringing to him, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four of them, since they, they could not uh, make an open, or excuse me, they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mountain paralyzed, and the paralyzed man was lying on. I mean, you think about this, not only is there a mess, there's, there's a public spectacle here. They, they're so bought in and they're so determined to bring their friend to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the one who could offer them the miracle that this man needs, 
But what are they willing to risk? Energy, time, even some humiliation. Why? Because love, specifically the love of Jesus, compels us to do these things. I want to add just a bit more to this. Romans 8.3 says this, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sin nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us, by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. This, this verse is saying that the law of Moses, the, the, the knowing of right and wrong, the commandments, they weren't enough to compel us to, to have right behavior. Just knowing the right thing to do is not enough for us to always do it. Don't we know this, parents? Don't we know this, human beings? Just because we know the right thing to do doesn't mean that we always do it. And yet, now what is compelling us is not just the fact that, oh, now we know that's the right thing to do. The thing that should be compelling us, followers of Jesus, is to, to remember that, that friends bring, bring friends to Jesus is this, that the love of God has deemed that they would not be the other, but that they would be part of the family of God. So we need to be able to risk it all. I'll even go so far to say this. We should be willing to do anything but sin to bring a friend to Jesus. Anything. Anything. Well, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, I... Let me explain it to you. Anything. We should be willing to do anything. Because is that not the most valuable thing that we could offer someone? Is an opportunity to know about, about Jesus, the saver of souls, the redeemer, our friend? to feel and express God's love? I think so. Verse 5 says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Have you noticed that sometimes when Jesus does something and he actually makes a move in somebody else's life, that there are, there are oftentimes some other people around who just aren't all bought into what Jesus is doing. Have you guys found that out? Like, like maybe you're so excited about what, what Jesus is showing you or how he's changing, you're moving in your heart, and you're like, you just want more and more and more. And it just seems like there are just people who maybe remember the old you, and they just they like the old you, but they're not a big fan of the new you because it's the Jesus in you that offends them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Hey, raise, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. In this crowd, the, the teachers of the law are these people. What's interesting is this. The teachers of the law have a front row seat to Jesus' teaching, which means that they were there early. They weren't there because they were curious as to, what, say, or to hear what Jesus would have to say. They were curious because they wanted to basically get at Jesus. They were looking for a way for him to maybe teach something or to say something to maybe bring a scandal, bring some sort of controversy. They were looking for a gotcha with Jesus. So Jesus, 
He says to this paralytic man in verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now it says in verse 6, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet, when I read the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, you just see the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, they just seem to be perpetually in a bad mood. They're just like, they're just, they're just always in a bad mood. And now they're there at the feet of Jesus. They're unhappy with what Jesus is teaching, and most likely, and now we know that they're also unhappy of what Jesus is doing by providing this miracle in this moment in what Jesus is saying. And they say back in verse 7, it says, Why does this fellow talk like that? But he's saying, or excuse me, they're saying this in their mind. They're not even saying it out loud. But Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, I want to illustrate the mind of Christ with this picture of this diamond. This is the Paragon diamond, by the way. It's 137.82 carats. I think the 0.82 matters. I'm not really sure, though. 137.82 carats. It's the 10th largest white diamond in the world. It's, it's, it was mined in Brazil. It's known as mo maybe the most exceptional white flawless stone. It could sell. This was data from 2017. It could sell for upwards of $72 million. So perhaps you're getting ready to get married. You're looking for something. In premarital counseling, we're probably going to talk about if that's the right idea or not for you. Um, and if you have that kind of, you know, that kind of like extra income, maybe we talk about where you can put that to to benefit some things. It's a beautiful diamond, is it not? It's been said of this diamond. It's probably true of yours as well if you have a diamond. Is this, you could look at this diamond from any angle and the way that the, that the light would catch the diamond would allow you to see just the brilliance and the eloquence from every angle. It would provide something new. And again, it's, it's one of the known as just an exceptional, maybe a flawless diamond. So no matter what angle you look at it, it's just going to look amazing and just look brilliant. The mind of Jesus is brilliant like that and more. Just when you think you have Jesus figured out and you go into the Bible and you see what Jesus said or you, you, you to read about what Jesus did, you see the mind of Jesus and just like turning it over and you see a new perspective, brand new. And you turn it over and there's a new perspective, brand new. And you turn it over and there's a new perspective, brand new. And we see that in this passage. Jesus knows in his mind what they're thinking in their minds. And he responds to it. He responds to it. How does he respond? He says, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Notice the reason why Jesus chose those words, again, the brilliance of Jesus, verse 10, you see why Jesus said what he said after he did what he did. Verse 10, let's read it together. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This miracle is tied right to the gospel. It's right to the gospel, right to the good news of Jesus. The the whole thing that this man is in the middle of, being four friends brought on a mat, apparently more rugged than this, or else it probably would have said something about him falling through and hurting himself and maybe having to have another healing, I don't know. But all of this, the, the healing of the man on the mat, the friends, four friends bringing the man to Jesus, breaking through the roof, risking humiliation, all of the other things, the mess that was made, the spectacle that was made, all was to tell them and to tell us about the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. Do you know of the good news of Jesus? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you know how he has made you, how he's equipped you? Did you know that that Jesus, although you may feel invisible because of things that you've done or maybe the condition you're in or, or maybe just some social standing you have, do you know that Jesus, though you may feel invisible, that he sees you and you are visible in his eyes? And not just in a way that, that he's just a God who sits in heaven and just casts judgment to earth. Instead, he came to earth a way of showing us not only how to live, but to live perfectly so that, that his life on earth would die. And it would end with a horrific death on a cross to show you how much he loves you. Have you responded to his love? Have you had the words like this man had, the the words of Jesus spoken to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. You can hear my words and do nothing with them and you can have this this little tingly feeling and you can feel good at the end of a message and yet it's not going to last because what you need is Jesus Christ. Because it is Jesus and the joy and the peace with God that comes by way of Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. That's the way to be free. That's the way to have joy. That's the way to truly worship and praise God in the way that He deserves and that your soul aches for. These four men, they took their friend to Jesus on a mat because he needed some physical healing. But Jesus also knew that he needed spiritual healing. What about you? What about you? When you hear the gospel, what is that to you? You see, it's only good news if you realize that first there was bad news. And the bad news is you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Like, that's the bad news, that you're a sinner. And that apart from Jesus, because of your sin, you will go to a place eternally known as hell where you will be separated from God. You'll be separated from every Christian on earth who has ever lived. You'll be separated eternally. That's the bad news. 
But the good news is this. That can change today by you committing your life to Jesus, recognizing that he died for you on the cross, also owning the fact that he resurrected, proving that he was God, confessing that you're a sinner and repenting right now, turning from your old way of life and turning toward a new way of life in in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. But first, we have to have a reckoning with the bad news. We all love to, to come in here and be encouraged and laugh and share and, and, and rub shoulders with our friends and family. I, lo- I love it. I know you love it. But we need moments like this too. We need moments like this too because it's moments like this that God squarely looks at us and he shows us where it is that we are spiritually. Where are you spiritually? Where are you? Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you just a series of questions, and I would just invite you to If you would just indulge me this time and just bow your heads and close your eyes, I will be asking you a series of questions and I want to know how best to care for you and minister for you or minister to you. If we could have the house lights back on, please. Everybody, if you would, again, just keep your eyes closed, heads down. I want to be able to see you. Do you have a friend who needs Jesus? If so, please raise your hand. Thank you. Do you have a family member who needs Jesus? Please raise your hand. Thank you. Do you have a person that maybe you've been trying to share Jesus with for a very long time? And maybe you're tempted to to just give up right now you're just tempted to give up you're like I've I've been praying for this person I've been trying to share with this person for years and years and years if that's your story please raise your hand thank you for being honest are you desperate for Jesus this morning if so please raise your hand thank you Lord Jesus, we thank you for the honesty of these people. God, they've just acknowledged publicly that they've got friends and family who need you. God, I pray that you would just use their testimony, their witness to bring faith to the friends and family. And God, I pray that you would perform maybe the the most amazing miracle of all, and that's just the miracle of salvation. Lord Jesus, for the the man or woman, boy or girl, maybe they they raised their hand just a moment ago, and and they were just honest, and they said, you know what, I I feel like just giving up. I've been praying and petitioning um, 
for this individual that they would come to know you and they, they, they haven't and I just don't know what to do and I just feel like giving up God I pray that you just give them just a boost of your spirit I pray that God that you would just give them more determination that you would give, give them abundance of opportunity God that you would give them a limitless supply of, of willpower and self-control and ability to be able to go out and share and God I pray that in every one of our hearts that you would deepen deepen our love for you so that you would in turn deepen our love for others. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. Church, I want to thank you for being honest. I know we're not through. We're not just going to move on to normal programming. There's nothing normal about this, by the way. This is all what the Spirit has for all of us. I want to give you a moment to evaluate. Maybe for you, maybe you, you, raised your, you did raise your hand or didn't raise your hand earlier. But I want to give you just a moment to pray specifically for that person, friend or family. For you to pray to God yourself for that friend or family who you don't, that, that, rather that you know who does not know Jesus, but you want them to know Jesus. So let's just have a moment of stillness in the room. Again, bowing our heads, being respectful for those around us. I want to give you permission. It's okay for you to pray out loud. You can also pray in silent. That's completely up to you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing our prayers. And Lord Jesus, I pray, as I have been for my sister Dawn, I pray, God, that you would do a miracle, that the cancer would not be there, and that she would be well, and that the continued testimony of her faith would be one of just celebrating you, Lord Jesus, for the person in here who doesn't know you. God, I pray that in this moment as we respond with singing, God, that you would just supernaturally just impose yourself upon them, God, and draw them out of the seats and draw them forward so that they can come to know you, so that others can share the gospel, the good news. And as the altars open, God, I also pray that you would just Send whoever else that you want to send. Maybe it's somebody who just needs to continue praying for friends and family who doesn't know you. But the altar's open. Spirit move. Let us be people at the end of this service that we could be like this crowd in verse 12 that was amazed and they praised you saying that we've never seen anything like this.